morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, nice to see you all. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Acts, and we're going to look at the case of the high and mighty versus the humble Hicks. Uh, so before we get into that, let's uh, just say a word of prayer to the Lord. Lord God, uh, we do thank you for this day, this glorious day. And uh, Lord, we, we come before you to worship you this morning. We give you all the glory. Lord, may your Holy Spirit come and anoint uh, my words, send them out to do what you have purposed for them to do, and let them not return to you void, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do y'all remember a television show from the 1970s called The Beverly Hillbillies? Y'all remember that one? Well, the premise of the TV show is that you have uh, Jed. He owns this plot of land, and he's hunting, and all of a sudden he hits a spring of oil, and the oil comes flowing up, and all of a sudden the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire, right? Uh, and so the oil company buys his land from him, and he's got millions and millions of dollars now. And so he picks up his whole clan, Granny and Jethro and, and everybody, and they, they head on out to the Beverly Hills. And uh, what they do is uh, they're a bunch of uh, simple country folk, and they end up next to a bunch of sophisticated city slickers. And so uh, the comedy of the show, of course, is the clashes that happen when, when the cultural elite come into contact with the simple country folk. And one of the things that's so charming about the show is that the wisdom of these simple country folk uh, often confounds uh, these sophisticated city slickers, and they realize how wise uh, Jed and Granny and the crew are. And, and even though the, the Clampets were hillbillies, uh, they could hold their own against the cultural elite. And this is true as we come to our passage today, too, because what we have here is uh, Peter and John are a couple of guys from Galilee, and they were arrested last week, as you'll recall, and they were thrown into jail, and they were awaiting their trial uh, the very next day. And, and when the next day came, uh, the Jewish uh, ruling leaders, the Sanhedrin they were called, the ruling council of the Jews, they assemble themselves with all the pageantry and all the pomp that they can possibly muster, uh, trying to intimidate these two country bumpkins uh, from Galilee. And, and just like in the Beverly Hillbillies, these, uh, the, the wisdom of these couple of country uh, guys uh, confounds the wisdom of the Sanhedrin, and they have no answer. Uh, and these high and mighty snobs have nothing to say uh, in response. Uh, so much so that all the might and all the mass that the Sanhedrin had to bring against these guys, in the end, they could do nothing with them, uh, and they end up giving them uh, a stern warning uh, at the end of this whole thing, which I think is, is kind of a joke uh, when you consider uh, all the pomp that goes into this trial. Uh, and so Peter stood before these guys, and he witnessed by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to learn today, uh, and, and because we're called to be witnesses in a world that's hostile to us as well. And if we're going to learn to be effective witnesses uh, against a hostile world, we have to learn like Peter did to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit as well. And so uh, let's take a look at this sham of a trial. Uh, we're going to see first that the Sanhedrin questions Peter. And we'll look at the setting of this trial uh, first, verses 5 to 7. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, 
The Sanhedrin is equivalent to our United States Supreme Court. This is the highest court uh, in the Jewish land. And, and even though they were ultimately subject to the power of Rome, uh, they still exercised considerable uh, authority and power. And really the only thing that they were not allowed to do, their only limitation, was that they were not allowed to execute anybody without getting that approved by the Romans first. So very considerable power these guys have. And, and we see the Sanhedrin, they're made up here of their rulers uh, and their elders and their scribes. So uh, the, the rulers include the high priest and the high priestly class. And, and those are the people going all the way back to Aaron. They have a whole lot of esteem uh, in society. And, and the elders were the heads of the, of the 12 tribes and then the heads of the individual families. And then the teachers of the law were the scribes and the legal experts. So you get all these guys uh, together assembled against these, these uh, two country bumpkins, Peter and John. And, and the Sanhedrin is made up of 71 members traditionally. We don't know if every single one of them was gathered for this assembly on short notice, but we do know uh, that a, a certain a very powerful representation of the Sanhedrin uh, was there. Uh, Annas, for one. Annas had been the high priest uh, from A.D. 6 through A.D. 15. Uh, he was no longer the high priest, but uh, at that time, uh, the high priesthood was passed down uh, through the families. And so uh, they had uh, Caiaphas now, who was uh, Annas' son-in-law. He now held the title of high priest, and he held that position from 18 A.D. to 36 A.D. So now he's the guy uh, who is actually the high priest. Uh, but Annas was still called the high priest, uh, like an honorary title. Like if we saw uh, George Bush on the street today, uh, we would not say, hey, George, what's up? We would say, uh, good evening, Mr. President, something like that, right? It's an honorary title. And, and Annas held that title, even though he was no longer um, the actual high priest. Now, realize that these are the same guys who just recently tried Jesus, uh, sentenced him to crucifixion, and then had the power and the influence to get before Pilate uh, and, and convince Pilate that he ought to send Jesus off to crucifixion. Uh, and, and so he did that. And, and it's possible because Pilate was still in office up until 36 AD as well. Uh, he and Caiaphas's terms ended at the same time when they were both uh, fired. Uh, so it's possible that, that Pilate was still in office uh, as this trial of Peter and John was going on. Uh, so you can imagine, you have all the same players in place and all the same facts and circumstances. It's certainly well within Peter and John's thinking that a death sentence was a possible and maybe even probable outcome uh, of what they were going to get in this trial, just like the sentence that Jesus got. So now imagine these guys, uh, these, these pompous Sanhedrin guys, dressed in all their robes and everything, filing into this assembly uh, one by one. And, and it would remind you of how our Supreme Court uh, comes into their uh, assembly, dressed in their black robes and, and filing in one by one and, and taking their seats on the bench. And, and there's an incredible air of respect and intimidation even as these guys, these, these intelligentsia, uh, come and take their seats and they look down from their dais uh, on these uh, insignificant defendants, right? It's an incredibly intimidating situation. And, and not only that, the Sanhedrin uh, would file in and then they would arrange themselves in a semicircle like this. Uh, and they would surround the, the defendant and they would all want to be looking at each other. 
uh, so they can all see each other's reaction and see what each other are saying. And they place the defendants in the middle of this semicircle, and, and, and then they would begin their questioning. And so uh, it would be an incredibly intimidating environment uh, for anyone to have to stand before uh, this group of guys literally surrounded by their authority and their power. And so here you have the very elite of the elite of Jewish society uh, literally surrounding them with their authority of pow and power. And, and they're from Israel's most cosmopolitan city, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and, they're, and they're staring down at these two uneducated hicks from Galilee. Uh, and it appears to be a mismatch uh, until the trial begins. Peter and John aren't even sure what they're on trial for, right? I mean, what possible charge could there be uh, for healing a lame man and making him well? Uh, what, what's the charge? What's the crime? What are we being charged with? Uh, and so they wait for the Sanhedrin to speak. Uh, but knowing uh, that, uh, that, that the Sanhedrin was made up mostly of Sadducees, they probably thought that they were going to be on trial for talking about the resurrection because the Sadducees uh, don't believe in the resurrection. And so they were probably expecting questions related to that. Uh, so they were probably surprised when the Sanhedrin says to them, uh, by what power or by what name have you done this? So they're talking more about the miracle than talking about the resurrection. And so here's Peter's response. Uh, this is his witness, uh, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, most of us have been in intimidating situations in our lives from time to time. I found this story in a book by uh, Kent Hughes called Preaching Acts as I was doing my study this week. I think you'll like this one. Peter Cartwright was a, a great circuit-riding Methodist preacher in Illinois. An uncompromising man, he had come north from Tennessee because of his opposition to slavery. One Sunday morning, uh, he was scheduled to preach, and his deacons told him that President Andrew Jackson was in the congregation. And knowing Cartwright was used to speaking his mind and saying whatever he felt God wanted him to say, regardless of what the people, how the people might react, they warned him not to say anything that would offend the executive. He stood up to preach and said, I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Hax Jackson will go to hell if he does not <laughs> repent. <laughs> The audience, of course, was shocked, and they wondered how the president would respond to this. But after the service, he told Cartwright, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. Right? The, pre the, 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 the courage of Peter Cartwright to stand up there uh, and say things like that with the president in attendance. And so Cartwright found the fortitude to speak to the most powerful man in the U.S., and Peter the Apostle did the same because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, 
uh, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told his disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. And so uh, here's Peter, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means in this particular case that at the very moment Peter needed the words to say, the Holy Spirit gave him the words to say. And so you have Peter standing here before this uh, crowd uh, of, of people looking to pounce on him. And he's about to preach to the very people uh, who killed Jesus. And his reply is almost sarcastic. He's like, that's it? Uh, that's all you want to know? By, by what power have we done this? Um, uh, all, all you want to know is, we're on, are, are, are we really on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man? Uh, uh, who could be charged with a crime for that? It's, it's like being charged with uh, helping a lady cross the street or, or bringing food to the hungry or, or visiting sick kids in the hospital, right? Where, where's the crime here? What's the charge? So he doesn't understand the charge, but nevertheless, he tells the same story that he told in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. But this time, he tells it to the actual people who sentenced Jesus to death. And this is very dangerous, of course, but you don't change the gospel message depending on who your audience is, right? Sometimes the methods can change, but the gospel message itself never changes no matter who your audience is. And, and Peter could very easily have been sentenced to death uh, for what he was saying here. Uh, he could have been uh, convicted uh, for blasphemy and, and sentenced to crucifixion. Uh, they could have taken him off to uh, Pilate, and he could have been sentenced for treason against Rome. But if he was intimidated, he sure didn't act like it. He spoke to this ruling body, just like he spoke to the people in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, but with different results. Imagine the courage that it takes to say, verse 10, to this group of 70 or so uh, of the ruling elite, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, or by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Jesus, uh, Peter has so much courage, and he's there telling them uh, that, that Jesus is the name or the power by which this man is healed. And and the name and the power you can see are used synonymously here. To, 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 to name the name of Jesus is to invoke power. And that's what Peter did. But then he charges them with crucifying Jesus. And that's obviously a fact they could not deny. I mean, they did that. Uh, but even though they crucified him, God raised him from the dead, which of course uh, validates God's, uh, God's uh, making him as Messiah. And you know, Peter could easily have just said, well, God did the miracle. And they probably wouldn't have gotten into any trouble for that, right? Because they believed in God, the Sanhedrin, but it's Jesus that's the problem, right? Jesus is the one that causes division. Uh, again, from Luke chapter 12, this is what Jesus said. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father and a father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus predicted this, right? He knew that these people didn't have any problem with God, but it's Jesus and the name of Jesus that causes division and created problems for the apostles. Uh, but that didn't stop Peter and John. In fact, 
Peter said way more than was necessary uh, in order to explain what happened. He could have just said God did it, but instead he goes on and, and tells them a whole lot more. When I was doing legal work, whenever one of my clients would have to go for a deposition, that's being questioned by the other party's attorney, I would always say to them, uh, answer the question. If the question calls for a yes or no answer, you answer yes or no. Uh, do not give them the whole book if they, answer, if they ask a yes or no question. The book will get you into trouble. Uh, you cannot win your case today. All you can do is lose your case today. So play the note that's played to use a piano motif. Uh, don't play the whole Beethoven's fifth when they play a C note, right? That's all I want from you is to say the word, the answer to the question that was asked. Well, you know, Peter, if he was my client, he would have totally rejected my advice. <laughs> And that's because Peter was not defending himself. Peter was witnessing as Christ asked him to do. Uh, he was being an obedient disciple and apostle. Uh, and so he did just what Jesus commanded him to do. And the Holy Spirit gave Peter exactly the words to say at exactly the right time. And then he, he had the courage to show them that they had fulfilled Old Testament prophecy by rejecting Jesus. He says, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected who became the chief cornerstone. Well, what does that mean? Uh, in Matthew 21, Jesus quoted Psalm 118, uh, verse 22, uh, and that's the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, that's the one that Jesus told to the chief priests and to the elders who... Um, uh, there was a wicked, or I'm sorry, there was a, uh, the owner of a vineyard and he rented out this vineyard to wicked tenants and, and he would send his representatives to collect some of the proceeds of the vineyard. Uh, but the wicked uh, tenants of the, of the vineyard would torture and kill each one of the people that the owner sent. And till finally the owner sent his son thinking, surely they will respect my son. But no, they didn't respect his son. They treated him shamefully and killed him too. And after Jesus told the parable, Jesus asked the, uh, what the owner would do to the wicked tenants when he came. And the chief priests and the elders said that he would bring those wretches to a miserable end, falling right into Jesus' trap. And so Jesus said, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes." Jesus spoke this parable against the builders, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, these, these very people who rejected Jesus before he was killed, prophesying that this would happen. And now that after it has happened, uh, Peter told them that by killing Jesus, they fulfilled the very prophecy that Jesus spoke against them. And then Peter says that God himself fulfilled the second half of the prophecy by resurrecting and glorifying Jesus. And by this, uh, God has made Jesus the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is, is the first stone that's laid. It's the, it's the stone that must be laid before any other stone can be laid. It's the most important stone, and that's who Jesus is. And this is Peter's method for how he's going to convict these people of their sin. Remember we said that uh, you have to first convict people of their sin. And the method may change depending on who you're talking to, but this was Peter's plan to convict them of their sin. And it was an invitation for them to recognize their sin and then to repent and be saved. And Peter told them how to be saved by the good news of the gospel in verse 12. He says, there is no other name by which men can be saved. You know 
uh, that these pious Jews were counting on their own righteousness to be saved. They were counting on keeping the law to be saved. But none of these things saves. Only Jesus saves. Uh, The gospel is quite simple. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and that when we believe in him, we have eternal life. So the things that the Sanhedrin were relying on, uh, those things do not save at all. Uh, The commentaries were very clear about this verse and in agreement that there's no way that these leaders could have missed what uh, what Peter was saying. He wasn't saying anything other than you must believe in Jesus as your savior or you will surely perish. And they couldn't have missed that. And so Peter gives this same invitation to repent and believe the gospel uh, that he offered to the, to the regular people in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. But how would the Sanhedrin respond? So we have the Sanhedrin questioning Peter. Now Peter's going to turn the tables on them and he's going to question the Sanhedrin as we get towards the end of this little section. But the first thing we'll see is that the Sanhedrin observes uh, Peter and John. Verses 13 to 15. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. You know, the Greek word for uneducated is idiotai. What English word do you think we get from that? Idiot, that's right. And so that's, that's where we get our word from. It just means to be uneducated and untrained. And, and yet somehow the wisdom of these uneducated and untrained men confounded the Sanhedrin. The power comes first from having been with Jesus both before, but more importantly, after uh, the resurrection. And then seeing the ascension, but then being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so John and Peter and the lame man, don't forget him, he's there too. They're all standing in front of the Sanhedrin with confidence because they know the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and I include the lame man because uh, just like in chapter 11, you remember that after Lazarus had been resurrected, the Jews went after Jesus and Lazarus. They wanted to kill Lazarus too so that they could uh, bury the evidence, so to speak. And so uh, I have no doubt that they would have done the same thing to the lame man here too. Uh, if they could, uh, to destroy the evidence of the miracle. But instead, this event was far too public, and there were far too many witnesses of this uh, for for, uh, them to do such a thing. And so the Sanhedrin didn't know what to do. They're completely tongue-tied. They don't speak a word. Uh, Instead, they order them out of the room so they can figure out what to do with these guys. And so we'll look at their deliberation in the next couple verses. When they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place, and it is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them no longer to speak, uh, to speak no longer to any man in this name. Now, these guys are behind closed doors, so has it ever crossed your mind? Like, how does Luke know this? How, how did he get this information? Well, it's quite possible uh, that Gamaliel, the uh, noted teacher of uh, the Israelites, was in the room as part of the Sanhedrin, uh, or even that Nicodemus, who was part of the Sanhedrin, was there, and that they passed this information on to Luke or to Paul. Remember, uh, Luke says that he he interviewed many eyewitnesses before he uh, wrote these books. So that's a possible uh, source for how he got this information. So 
What the Sanhedrin should have done, of course, uh, was to admit that a miracle had occurred and then repent and then be saved. That was the invitation that Peter was giving them. Uh, but that's the opposite of what they did. They could not deny that the miracle had occurred and they did not deny that it happened by the power of Jesus. And yet they still tried to cover this miracle up. And they knew they couldn't kill them because of the number of witnesses and because there was no crime and because the people would have revolted. And so the best they could think of to do was to call these guys back in and give them a stern warning, which is really a ridiculous kind of sentence, but uh, they had to do something, right? They didn't know what to do. So let's warn them sternly about what to do. And so they're forced to release them. Let's read verses 18 to 22. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. When they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. And on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened, for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So you have this mighty and powerful Sanhedrin. They're, they're powerful enough to wrongly convict Jesus and have him executed. And to anyone other than Peter and John, uh, this warning not to speak at all in the name of Jesus would have to be taken very seriously. But, but I can imagine Peter and John uh, standing there and almost like laughing at this stern warning and saying, uh, seriously, a stern warning is what you're going to give me for this? That's it? That's the best you can do is give us a stern warning? I think they were probably disappointed uh, in the Sanhedrin for their weakness. But then Peter and John turn the tables and they tell them right to their faces, we're going to do exactly what you're telling us not to do. What courage that they must have had. Uh, and to me, th this raises a, an interesting question about the limits of governmental authority. Romans 13 tells us that the, that the government is a minister of God, an avenger on the one who practices evil. So when is it permissible to disobey the government? When a government stops being a minister of God and becomes an enemy of God, that's when we stop obeying the government. Peter reminded them that the Sanhedrin was a human institution. Uh, and that its orders to Peter and John contradicted what Jesus told them to do. And so he challenged them by saying, you judge whether it's right for us to obey you or to obey God. And that's Peter questioning the Sanhedrin, turning the tables on them. What could they possibly say in response to that? Peter was obedient to God. The Sanhedrin, they're obedient to themselves and their own desire to, to maintain their position and their place. And so when a choice must be made, between obeying men or obeying God, we obey God. That is clear. How publicly humiliating this must have been for the Sanhedrin. These people knew that a miracle could have had occurred. They knew that there was nothing that the Sanhedrin could have done. These people were all glorifying God for what had happened. And, and all the pomp, all the circumstance, all the pageantry, all the might and the mass uh, that they could bring upon these apostles was nothing compared to the power of God and the witness of these courageous apostles. And in the end, these humble hicks from Galilee, uh, they humiliate the high and mighty uh, uh, from the cosmopolitan city of Jerusalem, and the Sanhedrin is humbled. Well, the Sanhedrin questioned Peter. Peter questioned the Sanhedrin. 
And now I have a few questions for us. So here's the first one. Is Jesus as real to us as he was to Peter? You know, as I wrestled with this passage this week, I was so impacted by Peter's courage. And after the resurrection, Peter lived his life absolutely fearlessly. Uh, He knew that what he said was true, and he was just going to speak the truth, even if it were to cost him his own life. And I thought about that, and I thought about where does that confidence and courage come from? And the only place it comes from is by having an encounter with the living God, which Peter certainly had with Jesus before his death and resurrection, but certainly after the resurrection, and then by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And believers in Jesus Christ today have had that same encounter too. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and we should be changed. We should be bold. We should be living for Jesus. We should be not afraid to speak about him. We should be bold and fearless like Peter was. And it's unlikely that any of us is ever going to face a tribunal that has the power over life and death uh, for us based on our faith in Jesus Christ, although it's, it's possible. Uh, but in the face of lesser challenges, like being embarrassed or being mocked or being scorned for our faith, uh, how will we testify? Will we be bold and fearless like Peter was, or will we shrink back? You young people, Uh, there are going to be times in your lives when you are going to have to face scorn and decide what you're going to do uh, when people mock you for your faith. Uh, Will you be fearless? Will you witness boldly? Uh, There have been several times in my life when I have been ashamed that I did not take advantage of an opportunity to witness about what Jesus has done for me in my life, and I've kind of shrunk back, uh, afraid to take on the challenge. I, I have done that, and maybe you have as well. And Uh, I pray that we won't do that. Uh, I I don't want to live in fear of being rejected or mocked. And I want to care not at all about what anybody might say about me as long as I am being a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. If that's the worst thing that they can say about me, then bring it on. That's what we want, right? Uh, And so I want to challenge us all today not to shrink back the next time we have an opportunity to witness about what Jesus has done in our lives The Holy Spirit gave Peter exactly the words to say at exactly the right time. And Jesus promised us that he would do the same for us too. Uh, So we need to trust him, that he'll give us those words. And if Jesus is as real to us as he was to Peter, we will speak boldly. Second question, who are we following? Who are we following? If we follow the leaders of the world, the best we will ever have is what the world has to offer. Uh, The Sanhedrin lacked integrity, right? They had no integrity. They had a little kingdom over the common people. And even though they they were oppressed by Rome, they didn't want their kingdom threatened by the truth. And so they knew that a miracle had happened by the power of Jesus, and yet they hid the truth to protect their position. And by not making waves with the Romans, the Sanhedrin could kind of hold on to whatever little kingdom they had and uh, enjoy whatever limited earthly power they had, but they would never know the spiritual freedom that comes from having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And not only that, they prevented the people from doing that too. Following leaders who can offer what the world can offer will lead to an empty life. On the other hand, if we follow Christ, we will, fo- we will, we will get everything that Christ has to offer, which is so much better than anything that the world possibly has to offer. Following Christ leads to, free, uh, to freedom, 
Uh, first of all, from the, the bonds of, of going to hell for our lack of belief because he leads to salvation, but he also leads to freedom from spiritual bondage. He set us free, past tense, from the penalty of our sins. And yet the Christian life is so much more than that. Uh, in, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, this life, right now. He sets us free, present tense, from the spiritual bondage that we uh, sometimes are enslaved by. He sets us free from the bondage of sin. He sets us free from the bondage of fear. Uh, we see that from uh, Peter in this passage. He sets us free from worry, sin, death, loss, health issues, the need to work to earn your salvation, the need that we have to gain other people's approval, uh, self-esteem, anything that, that hinders our growth with Christ. A life with him, a walk with him sets us free from that. It's a life of freedom to worship and praise and serve God uh, how we want to in a way that glorifies him. You know, it's wonderful that we are saved, but that's just the beginning. The, the Christian life is so much more uh, than just being saved. It's a life of freedom from bondage. Peter experienced it, and we can too, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we follow Christ. So who are we following? And finally, are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Not do we have the Holy Spirit. That's a, second, a separate question. We have the Holy Spirit because we receive it once, uh, once we are saved. But we can be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again as we continue to draw near to Christ. You know, most of us uh, drive our cars until our gas tank probably has maybe a quarter tank, an eighth of a tank left, and then we go to the pump and we fill up again. Uh, unless you drive hundreds of miles a day, there's no need for you to be at the gas tank uh, filling your gas tank every day. But if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you do need to be at the spiritual pump every single day. Uh, we have to be involved in prayer, Bible study, uh, Bible reading, community with other believers, uh, coming to church, prayer meetings, serving. These are just some of the things that help us be filled uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit. If your life is like mine, you need a fresh filling on Monday mornings and a lot of mornings to face what the world has to, to, for us on that day. We needed to speak the truth, uh, to fight a spiritual battle, to have courage to face a hard day. And we've seen it in these early chapters of Acts that people were constantly going back to the well of prayer and community, uh, at being with each other to get a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And next time, we're going to see how these apostles went out from this meeting uh, rejoicing uh, for what happened and praying, although they had just had a very draining experience. The first thing they do is they go back to their people and they get together among community with people. They uh, pray together, they worship the Lord, and they are immediately filled up with the Holy Spirit again. So when you're drained, the thing you do is you go back to the fountain and you fill up again all that the Holy Spirit has uh, for us. So uh, that's what Peter and John did, and I pray that it will be the same for us too. So are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for this passage of Scripture. It teaches us how to be courageous in the face of persecution, uh, how to witness strongly, even though we may even risk our own lives in doing so. Lord, I pray that we would tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we would not be afraid 
to go out and to witness to a world that is sometimes hostile to us. And Lord, we would just tell them the truth of Jesus Christ resurrected, the hope of glory. That is what we have, Lord, when we know you. Lord, give us the courage, give us the strength to go out and do that in a world that desperately needs to hear that good news. We pray it in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.